Ron DeSantis. Is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war too, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week: Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back in another edition of the Snap Hook. As always, it's. Your hosts, Tim Costello, Scott Barzola, and this week we have a special get with us. Pardon me, special guest with us, Janet Barzola, joining us to continue uh, our discussion on vaccine science. Janet, appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, so, before we, I guess before we get started, one of the things that Tim and I did in our first episode is we kind of laid out um, what our areas of expertise are. So we'll allow you to do that now so our audience, you know, knows who's talking to them. Oh, fair enough. Um, so as y'all mentioned, my name is Janet Barzilla. I currently work for a defense contractor. And before I go any further, I just want to say that everything I say is my opinion. And it's not that of my, of my company or anybody else who works in my industry necessarily. Um, I currently work uh, looking at impacts of radiation exposure on people, on, you know, on, a, on a person. So I do have experience, of course, um, with the immune system and with different systems of the human body. I received my PhD from Rice about 2009, and my experience there was in cardiovascular engineering as well as some cell and tissue engineering. So that is kind of a very brief overview of my experience and my areas of expertise. So I think it would be fair to say you uh, are a bit of an expert here on the subject of, uh, as you said, the immune system and, and um, the human body's reaction to vaccines and um, inoculations. Yes, I'm not, I'm not an immunologist, but I do have uh, more than a passing familiarity with the immune system. Fantastic. So as, as Scott mentioned, you know, in the, in the previous episode, we did kind of talk about just the history of vaccines and some of the vaccine hesitancy that that's been around when there were some some more questionable uh, methods, as we say, back in the 17 and 1800s. But now that we're in a time where I think the science is, is pretty straightforward, it's it's really interesting that that some of that stuff still exists when when the data is there. But can you just talk a little bit just to open it up? Uh, you know, in the last, say, 50 years, right, since 
or even after post-World War II, what has kind of been the technology changes when we look at, uh, you know, how we vaccinate populations as well as, you know, what vaccines are we giving versus no longer giving based on, you know, what diseases have been basically eliminated from society? Okay, so um, just really kind of bringing back just very fast prior to World War II, the big focus as far as vaccination efforts were concerned were on smallpox. I mean, smallpox at one time was just a very, very virulent, very easily transmissible disease and very deadly disease. It killed about 30% of the people that that um, that were exposed, that, that actually showed symptoms. And so you had back to like 10th century Chinese uh, people realizing that you could expose people to a small piece of the, the smallpox lesion and then they would develop immunity from smallpox. And so that kind of carried forward to a, the more natural vaccine that you're thinking of, the actual injection, um, which is kind of what we did as far as vaccine effort, vaccinization efforts were concerned through the 1950s. Um, in the 1950s, you had efforts by Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin to create a polio vaccine. And the really interesting thing there was that the, pol- the uh, vaccine de- uh, developed by Sabin was an oral vaccine that was available in a sugar cube. So you could give that to children, give it to them orally, not have an injection in the arm. So you had a whole new way of getting a vaccine available to the populace. Then they introduced um, you know, further technologies, including in um, engineering a portion of the virus. So you're not get, giving the person a live portion of the virus, you're giving them a dead uh, virus, or you're giving them just a piece of the protein that is that uh, makes up the virus. And that's what the immune system is reacting to. So each step of the way, you're making the vaccine more uh, accessible to the public. And you can expand as to what the vaccine can do. In 2006, you had the HPV vaccine that was introduced and that was marketed as the first vaccine that could help uh, prevent cancer because HPV uh, exposure is a leading cause of cervical cancer. And then leading you up to the very rapid development of the COVID vaccine through a a new technology called um, the, the mRNA vaccine which again is looking at the body's way of building a protein and taking advantage of that to make a vaccine. So I think the the technology has just been fascinating, the development of a new way to take the body's natural response and use that to fight off disease. I guess, you know, we we were talking about uh, vaccine hesitancy, which I think was the whole thrust of these two episodes, but we do know that there's a certain segment of the population that are, you know, has severe allergies to these vaccines and are unable to take them. So obviously we're not going to have any, you know, very many hundred percent inoculations. So what percentage of inoculations do we need to have in order for us as a society to be safe? So that's going to depend on um, on the, the disease itself. So something that's very easily transmissible like measles, you need about 94, 95% of the population to be vaccinated. And when they say herd immunity, that doesn't mean that people who are unable to take the vaccine 
will not get sick. What that means is they're less likely to get sick. You know, for example, if, if I don't get a vaccination, but everybody in my office has a vaccination, everybody in my family has a vaccination, and I don't receive it, I can still receive, I can still get the disease if I go to HEB and somebody who has measles coughs on me. It just means that I'm less likely to get sick. I'm less likely to get exposed. Um, you spoke about eradication earlier. So the only disease that the WHO has called eradicated, designated as eradicated as smallpox. And that was originally supposed to be, I think, viewed as an 80% uh, hurt uh, vaccination uh, prevalency in order to be considered in order to have herd immunity. So uh, it depends really on the disease, how easily transmissible it is, and really how you um, vaccinate the populace. So my dog's growling in the background. Um, in the case of smallpox, they focused their efforts on people who actually showed symptoms of the disease, isolated them, found all their contacts, made sure they were vaccinated so that they were able to isolate smallpox to a very small group of people when they weren't able to get that 80% vaccination rate. I, I'm, I'm kind of interested too with, you mentioned the, the tracking, right? And, and we've gotten so good at, I guess, tracing or, or you know, um, in, in COVID, they were able to, to quickly determine if you're around people and, and, and you need to get tested and things like that. How important is, is that tracing and that tracking in, you know, the, the future of, of our abilities to fight against diseases? Because I think as, as we've shown through COVID, you know, there's, there's a high likelihood that this is going to happen again, just based on the way our society broke out on this one. Um, so how, how important is it to, to be able to trace and track and, and where does, where do you see maybe, obviously it is important, but where do you see the future of that going along with vaccine technology? If you have any idea on that. Uh, specifically tracking, I do think it's important, but I don't know how feasible it is. Um, because you don't want, you, you want some level of privacy, right? You don't want everybody to know when you're sick and especially with COVID, there is kind of a stigma, especially in early 2020, 2021, with people who developed COVID. You weren't masking, you didn't get the vaccination. There, there was kind of that pushback. And you also didn't want people to see you as disease-ridden. I mean, if you had, if you had symptoms of COVID, I mean, heck, I have asthma. I cough all the time. <laughs> I, I hated going out in public and coughing and having people uh, uh, get as far away from me as they could. Um, and I think if you have people, you know, have to say, I have, I have COVID, you're going to have issues with people um, complying. Um, but I do think it's crucial. I mean, to some level, the CDC already does tracking of many, many communicable diseases. If there is a case of measles in the area, um, chickenpox in the area, that's how you get the information. There's an outbreak. But obviously, unless you know where the clusters are, unless you know that there's a breakout, you really can't do anything about it. Um, as far as vaccination is concerned and how that fits into, into tracking, of course, if you have groups of people who might be hesitant to receive a vaccine, if you tell them, well, there's a COVID outbreak in your area, that might make them more likely to get the vaccine. Whereas before, I mean, in Texas, we were some of... 
we would see in the early days of the COVID outbreak, you would see cases in New York, you'd see cases in California, but not necessarily cases local to us. So maybe we were less likely to say, I really have to be careful. But if you know that these cases are close to you, you're suddenly saying, oh, yeah, get me to the doctor. There's an outbreak. I want to protect myself. So I think every little bit helps when it comes to a disease outbreak. I think uh, kind of shifting a little bit since we brought COVID up. Um, obviously, Tim and I are, we are liberal arts majors. So we, we, we are not uh, really boned up on the sciences. And I think there are a lot of people like us now. If, if anybody of our listeners haven't figured this out, I obviously know Janet very well, so she's my wife, and I can go to her and I can ask her, you know, science questions. But let's pretend I don't have a scientist in the home. Uh, what are some sources that I can go to to see, you know, what are the valid criticisms of a vaccine and what criticisms are maybe more, I guess, you know, to a scientist stupid, but maybe to a non-scientist, maybe not that obvious. Okay, so first of all, whenever I talk science with people, whenever I'm training somebody, there is no such thing as a dumb question. There really isn't. And I, I loathe when people say that there's a stupid question. It, I mean, all a question is, is I don't know the information and I'm trying to get an answer. And I think that is the first thing we have to, we have to address I mean, there are many questions that Scott asks me that I know. I mean, of course I know this. This is my field of expertise. I know very little about politics or political history. And so I ask him a lot of questions that are obvious to him. So I, I read a comic once, an XKCD comic, where the, the focus was if, if you, somebody asks you a question that they didn't know the answer to, you're telling that person something new for the first time. And there is kind of a happiness in that, a power in that. So there's no such thing as a dumb question. However, there are really bad sources. Um, generally, when I'm looking for sources of scientific information, I'm looking for uh, WHO, I'm looking at the CDC, I'm looking at um, the Lancet, the New York Journal of, um, I'm sorry, the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, these, you know, NIH, NSF, these are all places where I know that the science is vetted. I know that before they publish anything, especially journals like Lancet, um, American Medical Association, New England Journal of Medicine, you, before anything is published, it goes by, goes through a thorough peer review. So that means at least two, three people who are experts in that field are reviewing the science, say whether or not it makes sense. The person who is doing the, the study has to say whether or not they have a conflict of interest. So I put my faith there. Um, and if you're not willing to read medical journals, because very few of us are, you look for sources that cite that uh, that cite these resources as a primary source and not sources that are cherry picking to get the answer that you, that they want to, you to hear. Um, but I also think it's up to, to the consumer to ask the hard questions and not, you know, just with political science, you're not looking for the answers that make you happy or that make you comfortable. You're looking for the answers that answer the question instead of confirming your bias. So you have, just like with um, 
just like when you're looking at a political column, you have to ask yourself, you know, is there a bias? Does the person have, have they come into this, into this study wanting to prove a point? Have, are they being funded by an entity that um, that's, has something to gain? Does it make sense? Is there is there a log is there a, a, flow, a flow of logic? I mean, you have to think of all these things with science, just like you have to do with politics or really any other field. Uh, just a, a follow up on some of the the points you made there. There's you know obviously we live in Texas where um, it's been a little bit tougher to be someone who you know follows the science or is of science. And, you know, and one particular Texan and, and Alex Jones is, is one of the reasons it's a lot harder to do so. And, you know, when you when you come across people and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot and I'm sure it happens you know more often than you'd like. But, you know, they're they're an Alex Jones person. They're a, a louder with Crowder person. They're a Shapiro person. And they're they're just lockstep in with with what they're being fed. And they feel like they've done the research you've talked about because Alex Jones is flipping through a stack of papers on theirs, telling them all the documents that he has, you know, what, what kind of conversations do you use? Or, you know, I think it's real important for, for our listeners, you know, what kind of tactics do you use to kind of point out to those people that, that, Hey, um, that's not the science, you know, here's, here's how to look at it properly. And, and maybe you've been lied to, or is that even possible? I don't know if it's possible. Um, <laughs> I think there are some, <laughs> I realize that sounds awful, but there are people who are going to believe what they want to believe. And every time, conspiracy theorists, every time you say something, they're going to say how it feeds in, into the conspiracy, right? There's going to be a proportion of the population that no matter if you tell them the sky is blue, I'm going to take a picture of the sky. No, it is blue. They're going to go, no, no, it's red. I see it's red. It's always going to be red. So there are some people you just can't get to get through to, but there are, but nobody likes to be called stupid and nobody likes to have it inferred that they're ignorant. So don't do that. Um, don't, in fact, don't even think of the person as ignorant or stupid, meet them where they are. If they come to you from a place where they genuinely want information, like I said, no stupid questions here. You get general, you give them genuine information. If they're coming to a point where, you know, my daughter was arguing with a kid at school who wanted to have a religion or a religious argument with her and he wanted to show her up. And I said, honey, if all he wants to do is prove a point, that's a boring conversation. Don't have it. So I don't I don't even start a conversation with somebody who just wants to own me. Um, but if you come to me wanting real information, I'll give you the information I have and I'll tell you where you can go to to verify what you're thinking. Or it's not, not, I guess not to verify what you're thinking, to get more information, to do your own research and to be maybe a little bit more educated. Um, my biggest thing is I, I try to educate people about the value of statistics and how easily they can be manipulated. Um, and I think if, if, if you can do that, you can at least give them the tools to, to learn for themselves. As, as you probably guessed, uh, Janet and I have these conversations frequently offline. Um, and so one of the more interesting conversations we had this past week is we, we talked about, because last week we on our show, we talked about the phrase, trust the science. And so, you know, and I, and I actually took the, the out and I just said, trust science uh, and not trust the science. 
But to somebody who actually works in science, what does that phrase mean to you? What would you like to see from the general population in terms of, you know, trusting science more? And why is it that people don't, you think? I think, especially over the last 10 years, I think people have wanted to less trust science and trust their feeling, their gut. Um, and that's that's hard not to do. I mean, we all do it. You you observe something. I, I, I always tell people that I observe something anecdotally. Um, and, and I'm very, I'm very uh, careful to say this is not something that I've confirmed. But if you, if you observe something and you're being told the very opposite is true, it's very difficult for you to believe that. Um, if you're being told through all this, everything you read online that X is true, you're going to have a difficult time thinking that Y is true. So if you're being told, if you're being told through all of your online sources that COVID is a hoax, you're going to have a hard time believing that COVID is actually a real, a, a real issue. Um, again, I think it all comes down to being a, um, edu an educated consumer, knowing what you're reading, what resources you're reading. If it's off Facebook, it's your, your source is probably biased. If it's off TikTok, probably biased. If it's off social media, it's probably biased. So just stop. Um, and, and go look at a source where it's been vetted. Um, but scientists can be guilty of it too. I mean, we, when, when a, the very first step of the scientific theory is to develop a hypothesis. So you've read up on a subject, you've become an expert on a subject. You think that if you do, if you do X, Y is going to happen. And some scientists get in trouble when the data comes out and tells them why is actually not going to happen. And I've seen, I've seen people do, I've been guilty of wanting to do horrible gyrations with the statistics to confirm what I think is true. And I think that's why I think there's just this, this feeling that what you, what you are experiencing has to be the story. I want to add another layer on on two to what what Scott brought up because I think everything you mentioned is is absolutely you know correct and fantastic. But I'm curious too if if we lived in a world where um, there weren't such barriers to healthcare, where it wasn't so hard for the average human being to frequently see a, just a general practitioner or to even have a general practitioner, if if that education process um, would be a little bit better because I think there's so many barriers to care or quality care in the United States that a lot of people turn to Facebook. They turn to quote unquote holistic medicine. Um, and, and instead of, you know, being able to trust science or trust the medical professionals, they aren't able to see the medical professionals because they don't have insurance. Or even if they have insurance, it's a $70 copay to go see your doctor, just to hop on the scale, pull your tongue out, go, ah, and be told, Hey, lose 40 pounds. That costs $70. So, I mean, it's it's a tough spot to be able to have a relationship with your medical professional in America because it's expensive to do so. But if you look at the way COVID broke out, it broke out at the beginning along economic lines. Those, you know, those who had money and you could say had the ability to go see their doctors and their doctors told them, hey, you need to do this and stay away from this. And this is real. 
you know, they were the ones who stayed home and they were the ones who could afford to stay home and could afford to take preventative care. You know, those who, you know, unfortunately didn't have the funds are the ones who had to go to work every day. They had to be unprotected. They don't have the doctors telling them that because they can't afford to go see them as often. So I'm curious if, if that, and then also, you know, a combination of we've just amped up Christianity as a religion so much in this country that like you just anything you can't figure out and you don't want you just say Jesus like because Jesus Jesus will do it Jesus will take care of it Jesus will protect me and it's and it's blasphemous to possibly say uh, no that's that's not the case and so I I think those two those factors specifically kind of add on to what you said where we've just kind of become this ultra ultra Christian fascist nation that can't afford healthcare and those two. You know, when when you can't afford healthcare and you just have to trust in God and and, and look to God for all your answers and not be able to get the scientific answers because you can't afford to see your local scientist, you know, or doctor, um, it, it makes it a lot tougher. Well, I I agree with part of it, and I think part of it's not something I considered before. The whole idea of um, access to healthcare being a barrier, or you know, um, being a barrier to um, to education, I think. Part of it might be the the lack of access to healthcare because I know that I, I actually have pretty decent medical insurance, but um, it it still costs money to go to the doctor. I think the bigger issue is that you have less of a relationship with your doctor than you had uh, even when I was growing up. I mean, when I was growing up, and and honestly now my my insurance encourages my daughter to go to her pediatrician every year, so we have a relationship with her. I go see my well woman care doctor every year. So for certain aspects of my health care, I have that relationship. Um, but for other aspects, I really don't. I, I don't see anybody for the rest of the year about, say, my heart health, uh, my blood work. And that part of that's on me. And part of it is because there's only so much that my insurance will pay for. And I do think without that, that um, person that you trust and that you've built a lifelong relationship with, you have lost that sounding board. As far as the beginnings of COVID were concerned, I think the biggest driver in how it was transmitted was pe- people who could afford who could afford to stay home versus people who couldn't. Um, I could afford to stay home. In fact, we, we shut down and we just did all of our work uh, remotely for two years. And there were very few deaths in my workplace as a result of COVID. Thank goodness. Um, but other people couldn't. Uh, S- Scott had to go back to school the next year. My daughter had to go back to school the next year. Um, and s- doctors and nurses, they could not afford, I mean, they could afford to stay home, but they couldn't stay home. And I think those were the populations that tended to have more COVID transmission, regardless of whether or not you were educated um, and had that sounding board available to you. Now, going on to religion, which I think is, oh, gosh, that is that is such a big piece of this. Um, so Scott and I are both practicing Catholics. I'm not sure if, if y'all know, if your audience knows that already. Um, so I had to um, make peace with where I feel that religion begins and where science ends a long time ago. I personally feel that the best way to um, respect your religion is to view the world around you and respect the world around you, which is science. That's really, I mean, base, at its base level, that's what science is. You observe the world, you make a conclusion. 
Um, but I do also, one of the few things I remember from history class is whenever we were in a, whenever people were in a time of prosperity, they went towards science. Whenever people were in a time of want, they went towards religion. And I think that might be part of what we're seeing now is that, you know, we're suffering because of COVID, um, uh, financial issues, everything that's been going on in, in the, in our political realm over the last few years, um, we, we are in a time of, of strife. And so that might be why you're seeing people turn more towards science, or at least in my opinion, I'm sorry, towards religion. At least that's my thought. Um, I have seen people um, who put their faith in faith healers, and that, that hurts me so much. Because to me, a faith healer is taking advantage of somebody who's in a very vulnerable situation. They're, they're to me, kind of the worst of the worst. Uh, speaking of worst of the worst, uh, one of the people that came up in our last episode was Andrew Wakefield, uh, who you were actually the first person to clue me in on him. Um, and so, you know, we talked at length about him last week. And so, you know, one of the questions I had, and, and this is, you know, probably, you know, a person of science is going to be able to explain this or, or hypothesize on this better than I would. But one of the questions I had was whether he really honestly believed what he was pushing and just took way too many shortcuts or whether what he knew he was pushing something false in order to, you know, to make a profit because he was trying to discredit, you know, the, the actual, you know, original source of the vaccine. And so, you know, where, you know, where is the line drawn, I guess, on Andrew Wakefield? Oh, this guy's a jerk. This this guy is an absolute unadulterated jerk. He, um, so I actually went, since we were talking about it, I went back and kind of reviewed, because I knew the basic story, and I, I went back and looked at more of the details of it, which I had forgotten uh, since the last time I'd read about his case. Um, I always, I've, I've always used his case as a, um, as kind of a warning about going too far down the rabbit hole when it comes to looking at um, people who not to follow. So Andrew Wakefield did what I, I think I mentioned earlier is to me, it's sin number 101 in the scientific community. He went into his, his um, hypothesis with a preexisting idea of how it had to turn out. There is evidence that, so he, Andrew Wakefield was the person who championed the removal of the MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. He did so by saying, by, by um, linking MMR, the MMR vaccine, to autistic enterocolitis, which uh, is a, uh, the, a gut disease that he, he thought that um, affected autism, autism patients. So before he even began this study, there's evidence that he did not like the multi-disease vaccinations, right? So MMR was already bad in his view when he conducted this study. There's further evidence that of his 12 patients, and 12 patients is a really small number. It's an infinitesimally small number to use when you are doing research. Um, I don't even know that you can come up with a realistic inclusion. They were, some of them were handpicked by a law firm that was building a case against the MMR distri uh, vaccination distributors. 
And he had created his own new vaccine that he was yes. trying to use to replace the MMR vaccination. Yes. And on top of that, and I had forgotten this point, he was, it looked like he was standing to gain for kits that were supposed to diagnose this autistic enterocolitis disease. So he, he had a pre-existing idea going into his study. He had a small number of patients that were handpicked, which you do not do. I cannot tell you how many cases, uh, how, how many retractions I've seen based on poor subject selection. And he had a financial interest they did not disclose. Then when he went through, the Lancet published his, his, his research, they came back and said, uh, never mind, we, we're retracting this. And since then, he has been on this anti-vax kick. Like he has made movies about the anti-vaccination effort. I mean, this guy is a, I, I don't think he got caught up in anything. I think he knew what he was doing the whole time. And what's, what's frustrating in, in hearing his story is that Melanne said, you know, they do what they, what they can in this situation. They, they, uh, they print a, you know, full retraction. Uh, he is no longer a doctor, you know, so the scientific community does what it can. And yet we have people, and, and I could point out specific celebrities, and, and, and we all know and, and love with air quotes, who still buy into this even after it's all that's what's so frustrating is that you know here's somebody who you know has given science a bad name and people are still buying into the junk science years later real quick i i think too it, it, to me he preys on the parents it starts with him preying on the parents of children with autism because at the end of the day if you are a loving caring parent you could do what you can to you know help your kid or find out what's wrong or figure out what happened and so i i I just want to add on like i think he preys on them i think he's preying on people who are looking for hope looking for ways to make their children's lives better and those people are more susceptible to his you know pardon my language bullshit because they have they there's guilt there did i do something wrong did i could i have caused my child's autism by giving them this vaccine well let me make sure i don't make anything worse and so you know to me he's preying on those that population of parents that's how he still survives right and there's no other way in my mind that this guy could still be making money and surviving unless he is literally preying on a portion of the population that unfortunately is very very vulnerable He's not only preying on that population, he is, I totally agree with you, but he's also preying. I remember when I was pregnant with my daughter umpteen years ago, the big worry was, you know, nobody knows what causes autism. And that line even moves because the definition of what autism is has changed even since I was younger. Everything when I was pregnant was linked to autism. Don't eat this. Your child will develop autism. Don't do that. Your child, will, the vaccines don't develop, you know, they'll develop autism. Don't, and my favorite was don't get stressed because stressed and stress during pregnancy is linked to autism. Um, but I think in many of the cases, the parents that, that he is, that I fully agree, the parents he's talking to, the healthcare professionals he's talking to, they truly want what's best for the kid. And they don't want to make a bad situ- situation worse. So I agree. What he's doing is preying on the vulnerable. And I think, you know, and, and this is where in my mind I have to separate things out because uh, 
Janet and I have some very good friends and their um, and their son um, they thought in the beginning was autistic because he he, uh, he showed a lot of autistic tendencies and so I think we have to divide between a parent wanting to find out what's going on with their child which is what they should do and wanting to blame what has happened with their child on something else because you know while that might i guess make you feel better in the moment it really doesn't do anything for your child and, and one thing and i know from from my work uh, as a special education teacher what i know is that if you do have a child that's autistic the sooner that you can that you can intervene the sooner that you can uh, that you can provide training the sooner that you can you know, provide, you know, specific stimuli and, and, uh, and work with them, the more likely they're going to come out the other end, you know, in a good place. And we have a lot of autistic kids in our, on our campus. I mean, in fact, we probably have more, almost as many of them as we do, you know, kids that are learning disabled. And many of them are, you know, practically normal because we've been working with them for so long, you know, with strategies and things like that. And the thing is to sit there and say, this vaccine cost it. Okay, even if it did, that doesn't do anything for your child now. Okay, your child, is if they're autistic now, what you want to focus on is you want to focus on, okay, how do I help them? How do I, you know, make sure that they you know, are as well-rounded as they possibly be? You know, what can I do to help them? Sitting there saying it was the MMR vaccine. Okay, yeah, let's say it was. That's, you know, okay, fantastic. But you, you know, we, we need to focus on, you know, what do we do for our children now, you know, that we have this diagnosis. Well, I agree with your point, but I think that's not the full the full issue. The full issue is that while you want to you want to help the kids who have become ill, or I mean, really with autism, it's condition. It's not becoming ill, right? It's something that you that you live with. Um, if there is a root cause for autism, because it's scary, it's it's scary to to go through that entire process of what is going on with my child, and then how do I help them? You want to avoid that if you can, and so I think that's the focus on the vaccinations as a cause, you know, as opposed to we're going to blame the companies. It's more of how can we stop this from happening again? There's a there's a perceived rise in cases of autism. Right, right as we have uh, increased our numbers of kids that are vaccinated, is there a link? And if there is, we need to fix it. I get, I get that. Um, but you have to look for the right cause. And the time that you spend going after the, the red herring, the, the wrong causes, is time that you're spending not looking for the tr- any true link of autism with something that may prevent new cases i think part of also what's so frustrating especially with the new age of vaccine hesitancy is some of the technology is just so amazing right with with mrna technology i think you know the future of what we're going to be able to do with that is you know you have the possibility to change the world you have the possibility to reduce the cost of medications for people you have the possibility to make custom medication for people um, you know, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen with, you know, kind of that future of technology of, you know, and what you know is possible with mRNA? 
Um, I unfortunately don't know a whole lot about mRNA other than the actual what it does, uh, what what the science is. Um, but as far as so I can only speak in generalities about about um, what is possible with new advances in, in medicine. Um, I do think it's interesting that the use of mRNA technology was used to bring the COVID vaccine to market so quickly. Um, I think that it remains to be seen whether the whether we will regret bringing a drug to market so quickly. I hope not. Um, I haven't seen anything so far that would indicate that we that we do that we will. Um, but if we can expand that to other diseases, other vaccinations, or other treatments, I do think that that can be a a a I don't want to say game changer because I hate those types of words, but yeah, game changer. Um, it's kind of to shift a little bit. Um, Tim and I are clear like high school graduates. Um, and I'm trying to think, I, I'm trying to, to, to game this out here. Uh, was a Miss Thompson at Lake when you were teaching, when you were going through there? She taught what chemistry. Was, what did she teach? Chemistry. I, maybe, I didn't have uh, her for chemistry. I had uh somebody else i can't oh it's gonna drive me crazy because she retired my senior year and i joked that because she couldn't bear to not teach me anymore so and i hate to you know i hate to uh, list specific names because you know i know there's a there's a miss weister sorry it was miss weister was my was my teacher i know there's an adult out there that had me 20 years ago that's blaming me for ruining their life you know maybe i, I don't know i hope not but we used to call her Satan because she was. And the one thing I think that, that really, you know, looking back was such a shame was that any joy that I had in science was gone. I mean, I, I came out hating science. I didn't take another science class in high school because I didn't have to, because back then you could take just three years of science. And I took, you know, the bare minimum at the university level. And, and, you know, and one of those was a really good biology class that I took, you know, uh, for non-majors. But uh, one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, as a society, I think, you know, we have, we will lack scientific literacy, definitely. And so I'm wondering, you know, is there anything we can do on the education end, I think, to, to change the way we deliver science or change, you know, change our focus to make uh, kids enjoy science more and get more out of it than what we're doing right now. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I had the exact opposite experience as you. Uh, my chemistry teacher was a woman named Miss Sonia, and she was awesome. <laughs> she was absolutely fantastic. She believed in a ton of lab work so that we could see what we were doing. And honestly, before her, I was kind of ambivalent about going, about going into a scientific career. After her, I was thinking all the way, yes, this is what I want to do. I, I do think science is hands-on. You know, in language classes, or at least good lang foreign language classes, you don't sit there and just read, um, you know, Dick and Jane books, right? You actually talk to the teacher in the foreign language. Well, in science, you don't read and do problems. You do lab work. I mean, my daughter's got this project going on right now, or just finished up a project where they're doing an egg drop 
And her, you know, she's thrilled because her team has gotten us, you know, farther than anybody else without this egg breaking. Eggs are expensive. Eggs are crazy expensive. I don't want to pay for a ton of eggs to get broken, but it's fun. She's having design work. She's getting her hands dirty. So definitely, I think the best science classes uh, encourage you to, to explore because again, like I said earlier, science at its basis is exploring the world around you. And don't ever lose that. And I think you have, I think you will have a generation of scientists, even amateur scientists. And that kind of goes to my next point. Um, I think we need to stop presenting science in the media as something that is only for the realm of the super intelligent. Okay. It's not, I mean, I like to think I'm very intelligent. Uh, anybody who, who asks me, I'll tell them, yeah, I'm, I'm smart, but that's not, Science is not only for the really, really smart people. It's for anybody who is able to look at the world around them logically and come up with a reasonable conclusion, even if it's incorrect, as to what they see. If you have any degree of curiosity, you can be a scientist. Um, and one of the best, one of the best theories I saw years ago, and I've always wondered how this would work in practice, was kind of pulling on that whole observation of the world around you. Instead of having classes in biology, than chemistry, than physics. That's not how the world works. Um, the, the world is a kind of a, a integrated mesh of biology and chemistry and physics. All of these sciences interlink with each other. So having an integrated science one, science two, science three, and instead of basing it on concepts, basing it on where you are, you know, for example, mathematically, what, what other skills do you have that would help you understand this much science? And I think if you present it in that way, I think it's much more naturally flowing. And I think if you also introduced scientific literacy in the sense of, you know, pull an article um, for, for your students and say, you know, here is Dr. Oz's medical cure of the week. Do you think this makes sense or do you think this is bunk? I mean, one of the most powerful lessons I had came from my graduate advisor. I was taking a class in um, tissues and how tissues were, uh, how they're made, how they're, how the body makes them, how the cells make them. And she brought in a bunch of expensive lotions from Estee Lauder, from all of these, you know, companies I can't afford ever. And she said, this is how they say that they work. Given what I've taught you, do you think this is real or do you think it's nonsense? And I, that was one of the most powerful lessons I ever had as far as literacy was concerned, that really stuck with me. I think if you drive it home like that, I think you will have people who can't help but to be curious and to be educated consumers. I think you're absolutely right. I just, I sadly, I, I think in in today's world that would be deemed indoctrination, <laughs> but um, I, I do think you're right. And I think that's a, a fantastic way to break it down and to teach it because I, I was lucky enough, I, I mentioned a shout out to Ms. Weister, who I, to this day, will say that she retired because she could not bear the thought of not having me in her class. But we learned so much from, I took integrated physics and chemistry. That's where you do the egg drop, if I remember correctly. Is And it's it's fun to be able to learn the mix of those. But then I took, uh, I took forensic science was the science that I took my senior year, where we would watch an episode of CSI and they'd show some crazy guy in a lab figuring out who did it based on these crime stuff. And then she would take us into the, the Clear Lake High School lab and we'd learn how to do that there. And we, you know, our our final for the class was a murder scene that we had to figure out who did it. 
Um, and so it's it's fun to see the other types of science. And I think you're absolutely right in exposing kids to that. And one of the things I don't think that we did enough of, especially, you know, Scott, we were right across the street from NASA. Um, and, and that's an unbelievably interesting aspects of science. And and it's it's I, I don't think I ever had a single person from NASA come talk to us at any science class uh, at Clear Lake High School ever in my time there. I was fortunate enough to have a professor uh, one of my f- professors in college is one of the, the physicists, physicists who found the boson Higgs particle in Switzerland. Uh, and he also worked for NASA and he would like log on to the Mars rover and show us what's going on on Mars today. And and that opened like that opened my mind up and I wanted to learn more about it. But to have to have been a mile across the street from NASA and to never have anyone come into a science class and be like, hey, kids, here's what we're doing in science here that was a big missed opportunity to get kids interested. Uh, I think, sorry, our dog is in the background. Uh, I had a very different experience growing up at Clear Lake. Um, I literally uh, grew up around the block. Uh, well, he's called a Mr. Onizuka, uh, who you know perished in the, in the Challenger explosion. And so, you know, we, we had, we grew up with astronauts and all this, that, and the other. My mother taught third grade uh, in Clear Lake for 25 years. And so every year I would, I would get to help her put up her bulletin boards. And so every year she had the same bulletin boards. So one wall, she had the dinosaurs and the other wall, she did the planets. And I remember uh, one year, you know, we were able to put Neptune before Pluto because Pluto hadn't been demoted yet. And so it was the coolest, you know, hey, we could put Pluto before Neptune. So, you know, we did get to tour NASA, I remember as a kid. But the thing was, is that after a while, you know, when you talk about the planets, you know, you, you, they, they, we never built on anything, which is why I think what was frustrating. Um, the same thing, you know, we learned about the dinosaurs, everybody learns about the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And you, and you learn, and it's like, it was like uh, repetitive. And so one of the things, you know, and I think Janet laughs at this. And one of the things we'll watch at night is, especially when we get tired of the news of what's going on in the world, hey, let's watch what's going around in another world. So we'll watch like, you know, uh, videos about uh, Neptune or Uranus or Venus, or, you know, or Mars or Jupiter. And, and those are really cool videos. Um, and they, they've done a really good job of making things interesting, and they've done a really good job of making it to where somebody who is a, a science adult like me uh, can understand, you know, what's going on. And so there are people who are doing some really good stuff. It's just what we need. It, it, part of this is obviously things like the Star Exam. And, and they just, I mean, they, they destroy any kind of joy that anybody could have in learning. And, and it destroys the joy across the board. I mean, it's not just science, it's math, it's English, social studies. But there are there are great things out there. One of the coolest things we took our daughter to, we took our daughter to the Natural Science Museum, and there was a uh, an exhibit they had of death by natural causes. And so we walked through there, and it had a very similar uh, activity at the end of what your forensic science teacher did where we had to find out, you know, uh, who killed this person, how this person died. And, you know, you gave you some clues and, and you looked it up and, and that's what you came up with. 
there are all, I mean, there, there's fantastic work being done. It's just, unfortunately, a lot of it's not in our schools. Well, I, th I think it's, it's getting to be about that time of the show, Scott. There's been just so much happening here in the world the last few weeks, and so much of it has been frustrating. And I think you and I have, have sent each other, I don't know, five or six screen captions of some outrageous things that have been said. And I, I know this is probably one of the hardest weeks to have picked our scumbag of the week, but... At the same time, I, I think both of us really uh, both of us hit the nail on the head here on this one. Do you want to take the lead on on your scumbag of the week, Scott? Hang on, Scott's muted. He doesn't realize it. I found it. I had to look for it because uh, I want to make sure I quote this exactly right. Okay, so my scumbag of the week is the meme inventor, whoever that person was, and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna cop to this. I've you know shared my old memes before that I've seen that, you know, you thought, oh, that looks good. But you think about it, you know, did Sam Elliott really say any of these things? Did, uh, did Gene Wilder, you know, as Willy Wonka really say that, you know, did he really say this? So here's the one I had this week. And, and this is going to stumble in, you know, kind of into next week uh, for Tim and I. A rock in bad hands murdered Abel. A rock in good hands killed Goliath. It's definitely not about the rock, folks. And so, you know, for anybody who's not, you know, who's not into the subtlety here, this is the argument that a gun doesn't kill people. People kill people. And, you know, yeah, that's technically true. But there's just so many problems with this, right? So let me start with the first one. I don't think David was killing 30 people at once with the same rock. I don't know. Just a guess. Uh, I, I I wasn't there. Um, I'm guessing that you know that Cain didn't kill Abel and 29 other people with that rock. But the other thing is rock. You know, rock is this nature. I can go out in their yard right now. I can walk out and I can find a rock. It's not like I'm going to walk into the forest. Oh look, everybody! It's a gun tree. I've never seen that before. It's a manufactured item. And so one of the things you know, I've always you know want to say is that. Whenever you talk about a manufactured item, items can be used. You know, there's a primary purpose, right? And then there's, I can use it for evil. Like last time, you know, I've been dealing with a cold off and on, you know, I think it's more allergies, but went into the store, I wanted to buy a stronger decongestant. So they've got to unlock the door for my Sudafed. Why do they do this? Well, some people apparently make crystal meth out of the Sudafed. Well, that is what we call like a, a secondary, you know, non-planned response, you know, with the Sudafed. Well, if I take an AR-15, what's its, what's its utility? What's it designed for? War. Killing people, right? Now, I'm going to sit there and say I'm not a hunter. I've never been a hunter. However, I'm going to sit there and say, you know, I'm going to invite you that if you need an AR-15 to kill a deer, Take up golf. I'll I'll even give you you know Tim and I could give you a free lesson, you know, we'll we'll work with you, but you know, just the whole idea you know, and I think what makes me mad about memes is that memes, no matter whether they're coming from what whichever point they're coming from, they are missing nuance. 
one of the things missing in our society is definitely nuance. And so, you know, that, that, meme, that meme that I read for you, it's like, now, truthfully, is a gun going to shoot it shoot itself? No, it's not. But we don't have to allow every stupid, dumb idiot to have a gun. I mean, if somebody has, you know, if a wife has a restraining order on her husband, he should not have a gun. If somebody has, you know, just walked out of Devereaux, you know, down here in, in League City, they should not have a gun. If somebody is, you know, a convicted felon, they shouldn't have a gun. This is very easy. And it doesn't mean that if you're if you're a lawful you know, citizen, if you're responsible with your guns, if you you have guns for legitimate purposes, like some people you know live out on the farm, out in the country, need it for certain things. I, I liken it to, you know, as my mother likes to call them big ass trucks, you know, the ones that have the tires that are as tall as me. And there are people who need those trucks, who you know use those trucks for legitimate purposes. They they are working people that need a working truck. And then there's the jackasses that just, oh, well, it's cool to have this big truck. And, and, you know, lay you odds, they go to the grocery store, and they take up three parking spaces, and you're like, damn it, now i got to park way over here. It's the same thing with guns. There are people who are responsible with guns. There are people who, you know, should have guns because, you know, they need them for, you know, their daily activities. And then there are people that have absolutely no business having a gun. And to sit there and go like, well, the gun isn't evil. Well, yeah, sure, technically. Sure, it's a man-made object. But it doesn't exist in nature. And when it is built, it's built for a specific purpose. So, you know, before you know, we sit there and, and, and get on our high horse about, you know, releasing this, you know, this meme on Facebook and how, oh, we've, you know, we've owned the libs with this, take a moment step back, you're being intellectually dishonest. So, stop it. You know, it's it's actually interesting, Scott. I, I think the meme fits that exact description of, of what you were just saying, of something that has had its utility taken uh, and, and used for the wrong instance. You know, when the meme first came out, there were some bangers, and they were pretty darn funny. And it was a, it was a form of comedy. It was a it was a setup and a punchline joke real quick. And they were some great memes out there. But, you know, a lot of the times, and I think it's the far right first, especially who realized we can use this to spread misinformation and it'll spread fast because people think it's a joke. Um, and I think that's, you know, you're kind of describing guns. You're describing all that stuff. Memes kind of go into that when when used properly in a funny joke. Memes are great. When you're when you're using it to spread lies and misinformation because people think it's a funny joke and they share it and the next thing you know it's in the vernacular, that's when it's bad, you know. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing for guns in the right hands. Um, you know, they're perfectly safe. They are uh, a tool in 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 life. You know, they're they're parts of world history where you couldn't survive without a gun to hunt for your meal. Um, that's no longer the case, at least in most parts of America, but um, you know, they are when used properly, they are a utility, they are a tool, they have a function. When used improperly, they are a weapon and they're dangerous, and it's very similar for guns. Um, but Janet, did you have a I don't know if Scott told you ahead of time about our um special segment here. Did you have somebody that really just 
needed to be addressed this week in our scumbag of the week segment? Honestly, I kind of feel like I'm cheating because I think no. this guy came out last week. But uh, the representative from Tennessee, Tim Burchett, uh, after after the most recent shooting in Nashville, came out and spouted some BS and then gave some story about how his father was in World War II and his father told him, you know, if the, if the enemy wants you dead, there's nothing you can do about it. And there, there have been some fantastic responses. Uh, Stephen Colbert, John Leguizamo. Uh, basically said, if that's your if that's your position, go back and work at Pinkberry or something. Um, but it it still angers me. I mean, that's why I'm, that's why I picked it for this week because you can ask Scott. The thing that's one of the things that spins me up more than anything else is for you to come to me and say, I've done nothing. I'm all out of ideas. And that just that just oh infuriates me. And to have a representative say. I've tried nothing. I'm all out of ideas. Uh, may God be with you. Uh, that just infuriates me. I remember one of the worst days of my life. My, you know, the day after Uvalde, my daughter texts me and texts me and says, "Hey, yo, mom. I don't want to worry you, but I'm in a closet right now because there's a kid with a gun going through my school." Um, and to have that jackass come out and say. Uh, we we've done nothing and we've got no answer. So you know, go for it. That that just, I can't I can't even explain. And I think John I think John Leguizamo had it exactly right. If that's your response, you're not doing the job you were hired to do. If I went to my boss and I went, huh? Yeah, I've got a problem. I don't know what you want me to do. Uh, he'd go, that's great. Go back and figure it out, or pack up your desk and go home. <laughs> I think and Janet knows this because, you know, obviously, um, you know, we go back and forth on this. But I, I don't think I told Tim this yet this week. So Sunday night, um, our daughter is in uh, the church choir uh, for, you know, one of the, the we used to call it the life team mass. I think Tim, you know, is familiar with, you know, the life team mass. So she's she's a part of the contemporary group. You know, we, that's what they are called now. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting a text, and it's about 15 minutes before I'm going to church. So it's like, okay. And then she's asking me, you know, if an emergency happens, do I leave with the choir or do I go find y'all? And it took me a minute, two minutes to like sit there and go like, what the hell? And then she you know, texts again, well, in case there's a shooter or bad weather. And it's like, and she told us that the choir director was required to ask her because she's a minor. And so, you know, if, if we were, if we were going to sit there and require her to come find us, then she would have to come find us. Now, the answer after that was easy. It's like, you get out, you get to safety any way you possibly can. But to sit there and think like, what happens if a gunman comes in our church? And it's like, damn it. Why do I have to deal with this? Why do we have to deal with this? I mean, and obviously, you know, Tim and I, we, we've mapped out our show uh, and we've mapped it out for the next couple of weeks and kind of go back to my meme discussion. We're going to use two episodes to talk about guns because one episode is not going to be enough. Certainly, a little meme is not going to be enough. And, and there are people on the left who use memes as well. And so, you know, we want to be perfectly fair. And in, in every once in a while, I've seen one that I thought like, oh, that looks good. But, you know, when you stop and think about it, 
we need more comprehensive things. And, and to, to you know, Janet's point about the, the guy from Tennessee, it's like I've had some people who don't want to do anything about guns. And what they'll do is they'll sit there and say, well, it's mental health. It's like, you know what? Great. Make a suggestion. Let's actually do something. If you think it's mental health, let's do something. Let's not have a crazy person come in the middle of mass and try and shoot up everybody in church. It's happened before. It's obviously happened at a Christian school now in Tennessee. God's not protecting us from a madman with a gun. So let's do something. If you don't want to take away the guns, I disagree with you wholeheartedly, but you you go there. Let's, you know, if you want to sit there and say we need, you know, better mental health laws, well, damn it, suggest a better mental health law. Don't just sit there and go, oh, crazy people are gonna do what crazy does. Thoughts and prayers. That that's not good enough anymore. And it, and to get back to the, the point of what the representative said too, it, it kind of gets back to what I said earlier, where we're just when you're dumbfounded and you and you just don't have any ability to do anything, you just say, you know, I trust in God. God will take care of us. God will, um, God will provide for us. And as you said, Scott, you know that that's not the answer. That's not the way to get things done. And sadly, more and more Republican politics, um, especially if you just say, you know, there's not enough God in schools. We need a, you know, we need school. If there was school prayer, these kids wouldn't be shooting stuff up. Like that's honestly a response out there right now is that these schools need more God. You know, we need more Jesus in our lives. And um, it's just, it's sad. It's sickening. You're, everything you guys have said is, is correct. If, if you have nothing to bring to the table, you shouldn't be doing the job. And uh, it, to me, unfortunately, I, I feel like maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like a majority of elected public officials do not bring anything to the table. And I, I put that out on a citywide level. I put that on school board. I put that on um, Congress, state reps. I feel a majority of them don't bring enough to the table to actually be public elected officials. And they are there to make their career path. The ones that run for state want to run for Congress. The ones that run for Congress want to run for Senate. The ones that run for Senate want to be president. And that's why they keep moving their way up the chain. And they want to make more money at every single stop because there's so much cash change in hands during political donation season that every single one of them pockets some of it, whether they're left or right. But most of them get rich while they're in office. And the idea of being rich as a public servant when you weren't when you went in is pretty sketchy to me. All right, Tim. I know uh, we're going to have to gird Mm. up, gird up for this one. But uh, who is your scumbag for the week? So. This week again, I'm gonna hit on I'm gonna hit on mainstream media, and and my scumbag this week is 60 Minutes, because this week they had Marjorie Taylor Greene on for an interview, and yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene made a public ass of herself on national television and spouted fascism, spouted anti-Semitism, spouted just pure idiocracy for as they call it 60 Minutes. But at the end of the day, the person doing the interview wasn't good enough to do that interview. You know, Scott sent me an article about why letting her be on the platform is important, because if you do the uh, interview correctly, you can show that she's a moron. And those opportunities were there over and over again. And every single time there's an opportunity to, say, present some data or factual evidence 
or of the contrary, or just point out, hey, Marjorie, you're a freaking moron. The, the interviewer would just go, oh, that's gross. Oh, and she would just sigh or moan or be exasperated with some of the things that Marjorie was saying. And well, yes, that's what happens when you have Marjorie Taylor Greene on your nationally syndicate, you know, your national show. She's going to say some outrageous, disgusting stuff. And she did. And that's why you don't bring Marjorie Taylor Greene on your show unless you've got a sharp, great interviewer who was not afraid of her and was not willing to back down during that interview. And that's not what they had. It wasn't a, it was essentially a puff piece interview. She was never challenged. There was never follow up to any of her outrageous things. There was outward disgust. You could see that the person sitting there disagreed with her, but there was no pushback. There was no ability to shame in the middle of that interview. And even still, Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to tweet her ass off about how she was, you know, embarrassed on TV. Well, for the most part, she embarrassed herself. But at the end of the day, she should have been there in the first place because 60 Minutes didn't have the person in their in their rotation or in their holster to, to do that interview justice the way it needed to be done. This might be the first time I'm pushing back against a, a scumbag. Um, and, and in all fairness, I did not watch the interview, have no desire to watch the interview because I know what Marjorie Taylor Greene is. However, there are... Millions of Americans that don't. Sad as it may be. And so when you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, the first thing I said, now the reason why you put her on, she is one of the probably five most powerful Republicans in government right now. Uh, she doesn't hold any kind of a, you know, she's not a Speaker of the House, obviously. She's not a Majority Leader. But she has more influence uh, over, you know, the, the Republican caucus than maybe just about anybody. So you put her in there, and let me tell you tell you a little story, Tim, and I'm sure you remember this, and everybody who's listening uh, of a certain age, I'm sure you remember this, but I'm going to flash you back to 2008. So here is you know the fresh governor of Alaska who is just teeming over with charisma, and, and Sarah Palin goes on with Katie Couric. Katie Couric does not push back against her, really, just ask her some very basic questions. You know, what news sources do you? Oh, I, I use them all. And so what it, Sarah Palin revealed herself to be an empty suit is basically what it amounts to. Didn't take a lot of, uh, didn't take a lot of, you know, a pushback. And, and so what I think what CBS was attempting to do here is I think they were attempting to be a matador. And if anybody doesn't know what a matador is, it's, you know, the bullfighting in, in Spain. Where the matador, you know, gets the bull in charge and then gets out at the, at the opposite way. And so they wanted Marjorie Taylor Greene to stumble all over herself, which, from what I've read, she did. She called the basically the entire Democratic Party pedophiles. That's what, you know, that's what she called Democrats. So the question is, from, and, and, and taking 60 minutes out of this for a second. The question is, is what kind of faith do we have in the undecided voter or the person who we might call apolitical? Because the thing is, is that if you have faith in their intelligence, they can sit there and watch this. She's broadcasting for America that she is extreme. 
and is not worthy of leadership. And it doesn't take any fact-checking, doesn't take any pushback. And in fact, you could claim that, hey, if she had pushed back, then, you know, obviously, you know, some people say, oh, they were too mean, they were unfair. I understand why they were doing what they're doing. I understand, you know, the idea that there should have been pushback. I'd have to watch the interview to, you know, to see specific points. Obviously, I think the pedophile thing, you know, should have been, there should have been pushback there. But the question is, can an average, ordinary, everyday Joe watch that interview and come away seeing Marjorie Taylor Greene for who she really is? No, but that's not who they're going after. And and at the end of the day, Scott, it doesn't matter right now because she's just a congressperson from a rural part of Georgia. But they're setting her up to be a vice presidential candidate, most likely like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene on a ticket together, which is a crazy, disgusting ticket. But it's one that, like, sadly, sadly, will do well. And so the more that she is introduced as a national brand, that's what they're doing. So if you don't give her that national brand, you know, right now, you know, bad press is good press for her. She's being talked about again on a national brand when they're setting her up. Like they, I, I would bet so much money that that Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be Trump's running mate because it's not going to be Pence again. It's he's got to in his mind he's got to pick a woman to go up against Joe and Kamala, and I think Lauren Boebert isn't the person. It's going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene, and it's the more that you give her opportunities like this with no pushback, even though you are yes letting her make a public fool of herself. Which anytime she finds a camera, she says these exact same things. She didn't trip over herself. She was very eloquent as she vomited disgusting stuff out of her mouth. But she does that every time she sees a camera. This was no different. Now you gave it to people on a mass audience who there's enough people on the right in rural areas that go, you know what? I like that Marjorie. And next thing you know, in in the primary, here we go. And that's what scares me the most about the scenario. I, yeah, I, I, that's partially right. The thing is, is that 60 minutes has a different audience and you and I are, are, we have our own sources of news that we like to go to. Um, you know, Janet and I, we have our sources of news that we like to go to. And so we see plenty of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And every time we see Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's like, Hey, you want to watch a video on Venus? You know, because, you know, we want to stop, you know, the thing is there are, there's, you know, a group of people and I know how hard it is to believe, but there is a group of people who are undecided on politics. And so if, as little exposure as they get to a Marjorie Taylor Greene, they might think, oh, this, you know, she, you know, she's fighting for the little guy. And then, but the thing is, is that if they see her, the more they're exposed to her, I, there's no way. And the thing is the same thing with Trump. Trump never got a majority. He's never going to get a majority. And I think, you know, that's where Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to get. She represents a ruby red district in Georgia. And she's not moving beyond that. I, I, you know, she could run as a his vice presidential running mate. That, that's that's a that's a losing proposition. I I don't worry as much, Scott, about and I, and I hate to keep jumping in, but I don't worry as much about the natural TV audience as much as the after shares on social media, Twitter, things like that, because you don't 
going to take the whole interview in its context. You're going to take five to six minute clips where she talks about there may, you know, as crazy as that woman is, she can sound rational for five minutes if you cut the right five minutes. And so that's what scares me too. It's not just necessarily the the people who watch 60 minutes. It's, Hey, here's this clip of Marjorie Taylor green talking about vouchers on, on schools. And, you know, you and I both have our opinions on vouchers, but there's a lot of people who, out there who think that's the way to help their kids. They're wrong, but that's what they think. And when they hear her talk about that stuff, and again, she's not a terrible public speaker. She really isn't. But again, most fascists are good public speakers. So she has the ability to speak eloquently. It's just she's speaking eloquently about outrageous stuff. Now, she also, like a lot of crazy people, can't keep her composure, and she starts yelling and screaming by the end of it. And that's why you only cut the little five-minute clip, because in five minutes... Not the worst, you know, you can make her seem reasonable. The whole 60 minutes, obviously terrible. But again, you're just giving her a legitimate platform. She can say, I was on 60 minutes. Here's what I said. I just, I just think more, I think you're doing more harm than good at the end of the day with it. I I get what they were trying to do. I think you needed a different moderator if that's how you were going to do it. Because literally, like that article you sent me, Scott, all they had to do was say, the definition of a pedophile is this. Are you saying every person in the demographic and the Democratic Party views children sexually? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying right now? And and no one did that. No one, you know, and there's other things that that's just one really obvious scenario. But if you had someone who moderates that, if Stephen Colbert is moderating that interview, do you think he lets that comment go by without a single word? I don't. I think he I think he just cocks his gun and lets it load at that point. She might have walked out, but whatever, you know, you at least showed that like you have some backbone. You're not willing to just come on and say whatever you want. Uh, let me see if Janet wants to jump in here on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, oh gosh, I could, I could talk for hours on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, but my big question about that interview is that it's my understanding it was Leslie Stahl who conducted it. Like Scott, I didn't watch it. Uh, what I'm wondering is I believe Anderson Cooper is also on the staff, or at least he has been in the past. And I'm wondering why he didn't conduct it. Because, I'm gonna bet she wouldn't. I'm gonna bet she wouldn't sit with Anderson Cooper. Would be my bet there. But I think that would have been a much more interesting conversation coming from a man who is very out um, to to and you know the, historically gay men have been considered pedophiles. So to have to have her to have her use that terminology, I think he would have been a perfect person to come back and push back on what exactly a pedophile is and what exactly a pedophile is not. So I, I, I think it could have been a good interview. It sounds like it was the wrong interviewer. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I'm with you. I think you had the opportunity to, I think the mind was in the right place, but the execution was wrong. I'm going to guess that Marjorie had some sort of say in who the who the interview was going to be, and it was going to be someone who was not too hard hitting. Otherwise, they weren't going to get her, and uh, and that's just my guess. I I obviously am not one of the producers on 60 Minutes, but um, as soon as I am, I'll I'll let the audience know, and and we'll we'll change the style up a little bit. But um, I I just think. You didn't have the guy on staff. Even Anderson, I, I think he's too controversial for her to sit down with him. You just got to have – you need to have some young hitter. You, you, if you had some young up-and-comer her – because Marjorie's not going to do her research at the end of the day. I think everybody knows Marjorie's not a person who does her research. So if you had a young up-and-comer who was a hard hitter looking to make a name for himself do that interview, that would have been fantastic. But I just – 
it was a missed opportunity, and I think there's going to be a lot of harm done from her being able to cut clips and share that on social media. And not just her, but a lot of the the far right media will have an opportunity to cut these clips and use them to their advantage. All right, Tim. Uh, I think we need to move on to the last segment that we have for the week, and that is our dumb tweet of the week. Oh man, so some good ones this week, Scott. I'm, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna flip this to you first. See what you got. So I'm just going to count. I've got two, three, uh, four, five. I got five this week. Let's start with this one, though. Uh, Dan Wooten. Biden planning to snub the coronation of King Charles III tells you everything you need to know about how one of the worst presidents in modern history feels about the United Kingdom. Shame on him. Uh, Pretty sure we fought a war to not care about who was the king of England. And um, I also believe that kings are stupid. So there's that. Yeah, that, that's, uh, but as far as on the dumb meter, that's, that's, that's pretty low. I mean, we, we've got to, we, we can do better than that. Okay. Ted Cruz on the eve of the indictment. This indictment is tragic for the rule of law, but on the merits, the case is baseless. He hasn't seen the indictment. It's a sealed indictment. He has no idea what the evidence is. And on top of it, it is exactly the rule of law. Trump broke the law, and he's being prosecuted for breaking the law. So not a fan of uh, Teddy Boy, and he gets himself on the the list there. I'll jump in here with actually not a tweet, uh, but a comment. Uh, Are you familiar with Larry Elder? Oh, God, yes. Okay, so for our audience, let me, uh, you know, point out some very, you know, specific and, you know, blunt facts. Larry Elder is a 70-year-old black man, African-American. So he said that this indictment was the biggest injustice he had ever seen in his life. A 70-year-old African-American the United States said that, that was the biggest injustice he had ever seen in his life. Staggering. Here's another one. Speaking of the injust of the indictment, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, planned to be there to protest Trump being arraigned. Uh, she's claiming that counter protesters at the Trump Indictment Day celebration in New York City are planning to assault her because they are organizing an effort to bring pots, pans, and whistles to make sound. She claims they're going to assault her by making noise that will cause audible damage to her ears. I don't like calling anyone a snowflake, but this lady is the biggest snowflake I've ever seen. That was the tweet. That one, not necessarily a dumb tweet. Marjorie's the dumb person. But to literally claim assault um, for noise is is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. When she literally walked behind David Parkland, uh for like blocks screaming in his ear that he was a liar. Uh, if, if anything, that would have been verbal assault, but uh, that's another dumb one this week, Scott. But uh, it, it's been a fantastic week and, and Janet, we really appreciate you coming in and joining us and, and I have to thank Scott for, for helping us make this one happen. Well, thank you. 
Scott, anything you want to add in here before we... Uh... Just yeah, one last one that I was watching is technically, I guess it's a tweet because it was a video, and our other favorite punching bag on this show, we have to mention her every episode, Laura Bobert. Mm. She was driving to an anti... Uh, to a gun control... Um, so, you know, people were meeting together, you know, demonstra- a demonstration for gun control. And she's like, well, these people, I guess they just don't want their rights. You know, they want to, you know, just because 15,000 people in the United States get shot and killed, that they want, you know, they want gun control. And it's like, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the self-own is the cruelest own of all. Yeah, she's had a few cell phones here lately with her, her high school son knocking up another teenager, uh, all while still claiming to have family values. He is. She is at least 15. Well, thank God. Woo, yeah. She's, 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 older, a, she's older a freshman. Than, older she's a high schooler. 14. Older than 14. A, yeah, eighth grade also, it would have been real bad. Eighth grade versus ninth. Big difference there. And if you want to do a YouTube search, you want to have a good chuckle, go ahead and search up Lauren Bobert and public urination and see what pops up. I don't know if I want to watch that. No, no. It, she's not urinating in public. So okay. This, this is a congressional hearing where she's asking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> where she can't, she's just making a huge deal of how much public urination happens. That should have been up on the tweet of the week, too. Lauren Bover making a giant deal about how often public urination happens when there are plenty of things going on in the world. We, yeah, we, uh, we as a family, we went to Washington, D.C. Uh, it was about four summers ago, five summers ago, somewhere around there. Um, and I can promise you that the three of us did not see a single person urinating in public. Um, you know, maybe I just had blinders on, but I didn't see it. So uh, I'm guessing not really that big an issue. Does peeing on a tree in the golf course count as public urination? I think it. I think it doesn't. But uh, I want to pull the Californication and see somebody pee in a bunker. You know, because it's like literally a cat box. Mm, you know, I, want, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that show, but David Duchovny's character pulls that on one of the episodes, and I, I just I couldn't stop laughing because you know it, it's something I've never seen on the golf course, and quite frankly, some of the people I've played golf with, I am shocked. Well, wow. I uh, I haven't seen that one, but I assume you could just rake it away, and everything will be okay. But again, it's it's been a pleasure, and this has been a very eye-opening episode. I know I've uh, learned a lot about not only vaccines, but about some of the processes that go into making them and some of the technology uh, that we have, and, and just some ways to um, get some younger kids interested in, in science. So again, Janet, we really appreciate you taking the time out and um, joining us here on the Snapbook this week. Well, thanks for having me. I had fun. But uh, let's not forget, next week we are starting our two-part look into not only gun technology and ownership over the years, but also a history of weapons um, regulations in the world. So next week we're going to look at gun history and um, the history of when ownership changed in America. And the week after that, we're going to look at weapons regulation. So it'll be a really interesting couple of weeks on the political side of things. This week on the sports side of things, be sure to tune in tomorrow as Scott and I take a look at this first week of Major League Baseball. Um, if you're an Astros fan, you know I, I can only say disappointing uh, thus far, but we'll take a look at everything else around the league. 
And then also, it is a tradition unlike any other. T- it's Masters time, my favorite golf tournament of the year. Scott and I are going to um, talk some of our favorite Masters mo- moments uh, and and make some picks here for this week. So be sure to tune in on Thursday, uh, hopefully before the start of tea time, so you can get our picks. And if you're a betting man, put a little money on uh, who we think is going to win. All right, Tim. So before we sign off, where can the folks find you? You can always find me at Twitter, Tim underscore Costello 10. Also, if you haven't, you need to like and follow or subscribe the the show. And if you haven't liked the Facebook page, Snaphook, you need to get on there and do that as well. And and, uh, we're going to do a better job of, of uploading some content onto the page as well. I've got some some candid shots of Scott and Robert Ford added up this last week. So you can find me uh, on the Twitter machine at sparzilla. Um, I also write uh, frequent articles for Battle Red Blog, a Houston, Texas fan site. And uh, I'll mention this this week. This is daring on my part, but I do write a uh, an article in probably about two or three a week uh, for Juanita Jeans uh, under a pseudonym. And I'm not going to say which student that is, so you know how we could have a little bit of uh, a little bit of anonymity. But I think people could probably figure it out based on you know my speech habits and, and my politics. Also, if you if you haven't had a chance to listen to our interview from Friday's show with Robert Ford, um, <laughs> I I don't know where you've been, but you, you've got to get in there and check that one out. That was. Uh, I know for me, a really special moment to be able to sit and talk with, with someone who it almost feels like I spend every night with every single summer. Uh, but it was just great to just learn more about the guy calling the game for your team if you're an Astros fan. So be sure to check out our interview with Robert Ford. That was Friday's show last week. But once again, uh, Janet, we are appreciative of your time coming in and joining us. And we look forward to hopefully, hopefully having you back again. Uh, at some point next time we need a, a little bit more of a scientific opinion. Sounds good. This has been our political edition of the snap hook. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you for tuning into the snap hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snap Hook.